You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Before we get to today's edition of the 5 Reasons Podcast, I want to tell you about our sponsor, Greenlight Tech. Every sport needs a team. Same as in business. That's why more small to mid-sized businesses in South Florida are choosing Greenlight Tech, the full-service concierge IT company that gets it right. Greenlight Tech advises, monitors, supports, and keeps your important data backed up and secure. They'll even manage your vendors. Call Greenlight Tech at 561-325-9997. That's 561-325-9997. Mention this ad and get a free assessment. Sign up and get your first month free. Greenlight Tech. Be unstoppable. Visit greenlighttek.com. And now, let's start the show. Welcome into episode 53 of the Five Reasons Podcast. I'm Ethan Skolnick here, as always, with Chris Whittingham. Thank you for finding us. We're on iTunes. We're also on Google Play, Stitcher, CastBox, and our hosting app, Podbean. Also, look for the other podcasts in our network. We've got Three Yards Per Carry. That's our Dolphins podcast. Miami Heat Beat, covering Miami Heat from a fan's perspective. Also, Balls Cast, a little bit of a different look at Miami sports and culture. And then starting this week, this Wednesday, actually will be the debut of Pitch Invasion with my co-host here, Chris Whittingham, leading that. That's going to be a soccer podcast. It's going to be taking you uh, up through the World Cup and publishing three times a week during the World Cup and then settling into a once a week schedule. Also have plans for other pods. So be on the lookout for those at Five Reasons Sports. One of the things we've done that's been really popular here from the, the beginning is we've started a Heat Stories anthology series. We did the first one with Jason Jackson. He talked about uh, the five most influential people he's been around since he's joined the Heat. That was a lot of fun. We did a two-part episode with Eric Reed covering his 30 seasons. And then we brought on the first coach of the Miami Heat in Ron Rothstein. And you can find those episodes in our library as well. And, of course, talking to Eric Reed, talking to Ron Rothstein, talking to Jason Jackson, one of the people that's talked about a lot is another coach, the coach Tony Fiorentino, and we're really pleased to have Tony with us today. Tony, thanks for doing this. Hey, guys. How are you? Fantastic, especially now because I know, I know a lot of people on social media wanted us to, to do this episode with you because obviously you have such a broad range of experiences with the Heat during your time. And, Tony, I want to start here with you. Before we get to your Heat days in part one, talk a little bit about how you got introduced to the game of basketball, your coaching days up at Mount Vernon, obviously at Iona after that. Um, just sort of w- what started your love of the game? Well, I always loved basketball and baseball growing up. I played at Mount Vernon High School as a student, and um, I captained, co-captained two college teams, small schools in New York. And uh, when I came back from college, I coached baseball for six years at my high school at Mount Vernon. In fact, we won the first baseball championship we ever won as the one school. And then I switched to basketball when the job became available. And I was fortunate because my first year coaching at Mount Vernon, 
1978-79, had Rodney McRae. And as people might remember Rodney, played at Louisville, played 10 years, 11 years in the NBA, uh, had a great career. And, um, you know, the tradition of Mount Vernon High School, uh, I, I've, I've mentioned it throughout the years on the broadcast. We've had nine guys play in the NBA, which is unbelievable for a high school. We're only four, Mount Vernon is four square miles just north of New York City. And um, it's, it's a small little city, but, but unbelievable basketball talent. And uh, probably the best player ever come out of our school was Gus Williams. And so when I coached at Mount Vernon, we were very good, obviously, because we had a lot of talent and took a lot of pride in the, in the program that we ran. And um, but right before that, before I went to college, before I was a, before I, uh, I was a freshman at Mount at um, in college at Concordia College in Bronxville, New York. It was a junior college at the time, and. Um, I was a day student. There were a lot of players that came in. Uh, we all came in together, guys on my team that were dorming there. I had, I had a car, and they built a new little field house there on campus, but it wasn't ready yet. So we went. We took a little ride one night in September of 1967, <laughs> my freshman year of college, and we saw the lights on in the gym. It was East Chester High School. So we go in the gym, and it's my first meeting with Ron Rothstein. He was uh, the te uh, teacher and a coach there at East Chester a few years out of college, and he opened the gym at night, and we asked him if we could play, and he let us play, and we had some fun. So it was interesting that I was on his team. I went back door on a play, and he threw me a an assist. I didn't realize that many years later I would be assisting him on the NBA level, so it kind of went full circle, and that was the first time I met Ron. Uh, I went to college, came back, and started coaching at Mount Vernon, the JV, then varsity, and, and I you know, got to know him a little more. We worked the five-star camp together, and um, that's all, how our relationship developed. Um, when he left and went into the NBA, I coached another three years at Mount Vernon, and then I, the last two, the the two last two years that he was the assistant in Detroit, I became the assistant coach at Iona College men's team. And um, during that, he then he told you the story about how he met Billy Cunningham to to uh, Chuck Daly. He became the head coach of the Miami Heat, and he called me during the winter. And he said, look, you know, I, I, I have a chance to be a head coach in the NBA. And if I get the job, I want to bring you with me. And I almost fell off the stool that I was sitting on because, you know, a guy, he's been he's in the NBA five years. Figure he makes, gets a lot, uh, establishes a lot of relationships. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, here I am talking to him. You know, we were very close friends. And basically, he's telling me that if he could, he would bring me to wherever he went as a head coach. And, I, I, and it, was, uh, it was shocking to me. And then um, we know he got the head job. And I was at the five-star camp in Pittsburgh working the camp. I got a phone call. And Ron was on the phone and said, uh, would you like to come to Miami? And I said, I'll be there yesterday. <laughs> so that's how the whole thing developed. Um, you know, I, had a, I really enjoyed my uh, the teaching for 15 years at Mount Vernon. Uh, as I mentioned, baseball coach for six years, basketball coach for eight. Uh, at my alma mater, then the Iona for two, and came to Miami with Ron. 88 to start the new franchise and that's how that whole thing developed what other examples do you have of the nba being small right because you hear all the time particularly this is going to sound you know a bit kind of uh sort of 
somber might be the right word, but uh, like sort of when people die, you you see you know all the, the, this outpouring of emotion from the NBA family. How have you generally found that to be the case in other areas? I imagine you've probably experienced it some uh, here in your final year with the Heat as the TV commentator. Just sort of how how small the you know you you, you meet Ron Rothstein in a gym somewhere. And next thing you know, your your assistant coach for him. Do you have any other examples of how the NBA has been small in that regard to you? Well, it is a, it, it is a, um, it's not really, it, it, there's a lot of people in the NBA, I guess, but comparatively speaking, as an organization, there, there's a lot of uh, camaraderie. People understand the, the, the job. Um, they understand how difficult it is for coaching in the professional ranks. They realize it's the highest form of coaching that you can do. And so um, there's a lot of respect among a lot of people in the NBA for each other. And so when something happens to someone in the league, you know, someone's wife dies or someone gets sick and you, know, you root for them to recover. And, or when someone's let go as a coach that maybe you think it might be unfair, that they, they rally around each other. And I, that's what I have found. And when I came into the NBA, I knew people in the league because through the five-star camp and through my you know, having very good teams at Mount Vernon, I met a lot of these coaches who were uh, in, in, in college at the time. For example, um, when I was an assistant coach in 1978, we had Scooter McRae, who also played at Louisville and also played in the NBA. Um, Jim Beheim and Rick Pitino came walking into the gym. That's the first time I met Rick Pitino as an assistant that, that last year as an assistant. And then the following year, Brendan Malone came walking in with Bayon when we had Rodney. He was at my, they were at my first practice as a high school coach. And so these guys, you know, eventually got into the NBA as well. I met a lot of guys through five star that got in the NBA. So I kind of knew a lot of people in the NBA in that respect, but I was new. I was right out of college. I didn't have any, any pro experience and, but people root for you and they, you get to know them and you, you, you create relationships and that's, and then what I found is when I switched over to doing TV with Eric, that um, a lot of these relationships that I had with these coaches, they remember. Uh, we, we were doing a game last year in Boston this last season, and a, there was a scout behind me, and we had a few minutes after the game, and he starts telling me about how he followed Mount Vernon. He knew the players that we had. I mean, it just blows you away sometimes, the, the recognition that, that you have that you never knew people remembered, that, that sort of thing. And so it's a really a, it's a, it's a basketball circle that most people, the, the, the guys, they know of each other, they know what each other has done, basically, and they respect the job that everyone does. Talking to Tony Fiorentino here, I want, want to shift gears a little bit to part two. And when you get to that, so Ron Rothstein hires you as an assistant for the Miami Heat. We talked to Ron a little bit about what that process was like. What were your impressions? We asked him this. What you get to training camp for the first time with the players that were assembled. And of course, the way that, as Ron described, uh, the way that the expansion draft used to work, it, it wasn't as expansion friendly as it is now. Um, no, you got, you, no. you guys didn't have a top two pick. Um, you ended up getting Ronnie Cycli, I believe ninth, right? Um, but, and the expansion draft, you know, player teams were able to protect uh, eight guys and then you'd make deals to not pick other players. So it wasn't anything like for, for people who, you know, no expansion from like, 
what's happening now in the NHL playoffs where Las Vegas is in the is in the conference finals with a bunch of former Panthers players. That's not how it worked in the NBA 30 years ago. So you get to camp. What did you think of the roster that was put together? Well, what was interesting was when he called me to, to invite me to come down to Miami and meet Louis Chaffel and people and then, you know, um, get the job. He mentioned, you know, kiddingly, he says, okay, now we got to figure out how to stop Larry Bird. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, yeah, obviously he was being facetious, but a couple of years before, I was trying to figure out how to win a state championship at Mount Vernon. All of a sudden, it didn't seem so daunting. <laughs> now you got to stop one. You know, at that time, and probably still the best, best, one of the best forwards to ever play the game, one of the best players. So it kind of puts things in perspective a little bit. And when I came to camp, you know, I was two years removed as a high school coach. So it, it, to me, it was a great experience being with Ron. I learned a lot from him and Dave Wall. And, um, and I didn't really have any uh, preconceptions at all. You know, I had been, I was, I was good friends with UB Brown for many years through Five Star. I used to go to the garden a lot on UB's tickets. So I was around professional basketball a lot. You know, as I mentioned, I had a couple of guys that I was, co- that I, uh, was involved with as a coach at Mount Vernon who played in the NBA. I knew Earl Tatum, who, you know, one of the great players to come out of Mount Vernon and played at Marquette. He used to come back and play in the gym. I knew Gustin Ray Williams a little bit. And so um, I had been around pro basketball somewhat. But, it, 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 again, being two years removed from high school, everything was great. You know, it, uh, there was a great story. when I, You know, we were in the Midwest Division. I know Ronnie told you that. Uh, and we had to go out to the West Coast maybe five, six times that first year. We must, you know, we, we, we travel more than any team in the NBA, especially coming from South Florida. And I remember the last time we went out there, I think it was in uh, May, uh, it was in March, and we were in Phoenix. And I saw someone there who uh, I knew from college who was working for the Suns, and he said to me, you know, we started talking about how much traveling we were doing. He says to me, man, I feel sorry for you. I said, don't feel bad for me. This beats eighth period at Mount Vernon. You know, <laughs> so to me, the perspective was uh, it was professional basketball. We were a team, a franchise that was starting from the ground up. We had six rookies that first year. Uh, and, you know, about uh, Boston was in its heyday. Michael Jordan was in his heyday. The Lakers, um, all that sort of stuff. And so it, it uh, to me, it was all new and exciting. So it wasn't like I was a veteran of the NBA and we were winning 15 games. We'll continue on with Tony Fiorentino in just a moment, but first, a word from another of the podcasts and the Five Reasons Sports Network. Not that we're always right on the three yards per carry podcast, but we tend to have a pretty high batting average. It wouldn't surprise me if they pulled some sort of Stefan Anthony deal, you know, with a kind of a guy who's on the perimeter on the bubble of a, you know, giving up his uh, six-round pick or whatever. If I had to make a line, I would say Minka Fitzpatrick is a clear-cut favorite to be taken at 11. But I think number one overall is going to be Baker Mayfield with the Cleveland Browns. And I don't think the Rashad Penny is going to end up here because I think he's going to go in the first round. So a guy that they can get in the third and beyond is Callan Ballage of Arizona State. On Saturday, Justify will win the Kentucky Derby. But wait, that's mostly me being right. Well, maybe Chris and Simon should get some editing software. So tune in every Thursday morning for the 3 Yards Per Carry podcast on the 5 Reasons Sports Network. For people that don't know much about how NBA coaching actually works, how does the work of coaching a basketball team get divvied up between what Ron Rothstein is doing and then what the assistants are doing? Well, what... Well, my job was, was to work with the perimeter players. Dave will work with the in- inside players. So 
Um, I got to work with like Rory Sparrow. You know, he came on the team right before the season started, a 10-year vet. And um, my job was to work with them, you know, the, the different various skills that they had. Uh, the second year, I worked with Glenn Rice when he was a rookie. And uh, he and I have a very close relationship now because of all those hours that we spent together. Um, I can identify with, with uh, Coach Spolster and Dwayne Wade because that's how they re- relationship developed after he came back from the Olympics in 2004 and they worked very hard on his mid-range shot and his uh, and his balance and we had to do a lot of the same thing with Glenn in, in um, teaching him how to get open he, he was so good so big and and um, so good at shooting the ball that he never had to really had to learn how to get open and so we had to teach him how to do that things of that nature I remember one of the games um, my first year in the league our first year uh, Rory Sparrow came out of the game he made a couple of mistakes and Ron said to me something about you know when you get a chance go talk to him so I walked over there and I saw that he was upset I walked down the bench I said you know what this is not a good time to talk to a 10-year vet he knows I'm a first-year coach he's not going to take this very well so I didn't say anything to him I waited until later we had a little discussion uh so I let Ron think that I did talk to him when I walked back to my seat and I talked to him later so it's a it was a it was a learning experience for me I learned a lot from Rory working with him with the guards and then and then little by little it got very um it got easier easier dealing with professional athletes the one thing you learn dealing with high school guys all the way up to the pros that the fundamentals do not change we were a defense oriented high school program uh, and obviously I had innate ability type players and we everything we did was, was, was from defense first and we won state championships doing that we developed players when they went on to college they had very good college careers so it really wasn't that much different in the NBA developing uh, fundamentals at the perimeter uh, position. I want to ask you a little more about Glenn Rice because you had that relationship with him. And I think for a lot of Heat fans from the early days, it's kind of bittersweet with Glenn because he was developing into an all-star sort of before their eyes. I mean, he was really the first star of the franchise. I, you know, Cycle, had had moments and then obviously Steve Smith after that. But, but Glenn was kind of the first star, but then his departure was necessary eventually to make the franchise better, to, to add Zoe. I mean, that was the one piece that the organization had that Riley could move to get a player like that. Talk a little bit, if you can, about Glenn and, and kind of how he developed as a player there and, and a little bit more about sort of that relationship that you had with him. Well, you know, I remember um, we had our offices downtown before the new arena was built and before we went to LaSalle for four years, as a, uh, three years as a uh, uh, training camp, you know, tra- uh, uh, where our offices were and where we trained. And so we were meeting in a building downtown. And I remember Pat Riley was telling us as a staff that he was trying very hard, or he told us he tried very hard to not trade Glenn. You know, so it would have been ideal if you could have had Glenn Rice and Alonzo Mourning, obviously, but there's no way that that uh, Charlotte was going to do the deal without Glenn in it. And Glenn went there, and really, uh, you're right, he was on the cusp of becoming an all-star type player. Um, he had learned how to get open without the shot. He became very, very smart. Glenn was a very smart player, and it was our, our job to tap into it. He never really had to use some of the uh, skills that he needed to get open. and He put the ball on the floor a lot better than people thought he did, and he was a great clutch player. And Glenn had the, uh, had the mantra that he never wanted to miss two shots in a row. 
And obviously he did that, but he went in with the attitude that I'm not going to miss two in a row. And I always said this, you know, when, when I had a rebound for him and we were working together, when he was working on his jump, all I had to do was stand under the net. When Bruce Bowen came to the heat, I had to work with him on his threes. I, I always thank Bruce when I see him. We were over at LaSalle High School. Um, whenever Bruce shot the ball, he kept me in shape because I had to run all over the gym for the rebound. <laughs> with Glenn, you just stood under the net because that's where the ball's going to go, you know, 14 out of 15 times when he shoots it. And so um, he really developed into a very good player. You know, he's, he's got one. Of, he had the record for a while uh, in the All-Star game where he had the most points. I remember in the third quarter of an All-Star game, he got the MVP of the All-Star game in the mid-'90s. Um, he has a, a, um, a championship ring with the, with the Lakers. Um, so uh, I know that um, we, we kept in touch over the years. He works the camp with me now. When I, you know, I, worked, I, I direct the heat camps in the summer, and Glenn let, worked last year, and he was great. He's unbelievable. He gives his time. He loves being around kids. We, he and I had a camp. Um, uh, after Ron Rothstein left, I had my own camps in Miami, and one of the camps I had was with Glenn. He's there every day. He's on time. He works with the kids. He was working with a couple of kids on their shot, when he, and, he, and he, he's not afraid to get into the mix with them. And, and you know, really, really good guy, really loves, loves to work with young people, and was very receptive to coaching. And it really made my job a lot easier knowing that uh, here he is, you know, he was, he was just came off an NCAA championship. He had the most points in a five game uh, NCAA tournament at that time. And uh, Michigan won, beat Seton Hall in the old times to win the championship. And he comes into our program as the fourth pick. And he was very amenable to being coached. And I'll never, I'll never uh, forget that and always appreciate the fact that he was like that. I wanted to ask you about that story you mentioned with Glenn Rice and Bruce Bowen. Um, so to me, one of the interesting things in the NBA is when there are people who just or when there are players that just flatly cannot shoot. For example, like a Tony Allen or an Andre Robertson or a Tabo Cephalosha or now even a level of a player like Ben Simmons, who just outside of 10 feet is not shooting. Uh, you, you mentioned how Glenn Rice was a natural and Bruce Bowen decidedly was not. When you're trying to coach up a player's shot, is there just a certain amount of natural talent that a player has to have? And what can you identify what that natural talent is? Because on the surface, it would seem that an NBA player should just be able to and know how to shoot. And it really is sort of a matter of effort and work rather than a matter of inherent skill. What, have, what has your experience been in that regard? Well, it's an interesting question because I think when you get guys with innate ability, it's kind of like baseball where a, a great baseball player becomes a manager. He, he really doesn't have to, he really didn't have to think about the fundamentals. He probably, you know, like you get a guy that learned how to slide and did, just did it naturally. He's going to have to go in a pit, learn how to slide so he can teach it. It's the same thing in basketball where you got guys that come up. They're such uh, good players. They've been through so much to get to the NBA, you know, with 15, with 30 teams and now 17 on a roster it used to be 450 guys uh, in the league. And, and there's only 450 players in the whole world. And now it's probably like around 400, 
470, 480 in the whole world, that uh, it's a pretty unique group. And, 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 and I said this many times on the air, there's no such thing as a bad player in the NBA. They're just guys that are better than others, and sometimes they need to be in a certain situation to bring out the best in their talent. Bruce Bone was a guy that was not a good shooter, so you, what, you, what we started to do was work on his mid-range shot, then keep going out a little further, go out a little further, work on the technique you know, with the elbow in, and get under the ball, shoot the arc, bend the knees, um, lift, extend, follow through. Those are the three words I used a lot. Every shoot, I don't care if you're seven years old in our camp or you're uh, Steph Curry, lift, extend, follow through on every shot. And, and you repeat it so often. These, I mean, this is their, this is their livelihood. There is, no, there is nothing else that they do. And as long as they're willing to work, Bruce Bowen could not shoot a three when he came out of college. Um, I think a, another great example is two of them, Jason Kidd. He was not a shooter when he came out of Cal. And he became one of the best three-point shooters in the history of the league. And then Keith Askins. People ask me to this day, who is my favorite Heat player of all time? And I surprise them when I tell them, Keith Askins. Keith Askins was a senior at Alabama. In, um, in 1990, 89-90, our second year in the league, he was a senior at Alabama. They had six players who could start. And uh, one, the one guy that didn't start, when they were bringing him off the bench, it wasn't working for Wim Sanderson, the coach. Keith Askins did something I've never heard of before or since. He went to the coach, Wim Sanderson, and said, if it'll help the team, I'll come off the bench. Well, that's what they did. They took, the, they put the other guy in the starting lineup. Keith came off the bench. They got to the Sweet 16. Keith didn't get drafted. He averaged nine points a game. Stu Inman, the the, the, the personnel director, invited him to his summer camp, uh, you know, the, the training camp, and he just played nine years with the Heat. And I got to work with him. Keith shot on the way down. You don't want to shoot at your peak or on your way down. You want to, you know, that's what we call a hitch in the shot. You want to shoot just before your peak so your whole body gets into the shot. Well, Keith shot on the way down. If you do that, you're not going to be a good three-point shooter. You may be able to make the mid-range shot, but you're not going to make threes consistently. So we had, I worked with him every day. I'm telling you, he, tell you, he, he had to take 10,000 shots in practice. He was, he's the most strong-willed person, one of the most strong-willed people I've ever met. And we, we, we reconstructed his shot a little bit. We, we made him get the follow-through earlier. I think he became, in his nine years with the Heat, he would have been in the top ten in three-point field goal percentage if he had taken enough threes. He didn't take enough threes to qualify. But Keith had his own uh, 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 technique before a game, his own routine, where he had to make five straight threes from each corner, each wing, and the top of the key. And I remember one night, one, uh, one day, and I was always the one that would do this with him. So one night before a game in the old arena, he's at the top of the key, and he's, he can't make five in a row. I said, Keith, why don't we do this? Why don't you go to the next spot? Let's knock off the other two spots and come back. He goes, no, I'm staying here until I make five in a row. That was the determination that he had, and then he did it. And so I know that he made himself an NBA player. He came back early after his rookie year. He called me up. He and Bimbo Coles and wanted to come back at, uh, in the old night gym at, my, at my University of Miami. And we worked five days a week. He realized that he had to work hard to stay in the league. He knew he trusted that I knew what he needed to work on, and he played nine years. And now he's he's a, a an important member of the Heat front office for scouting and, and drafting and all that sort of stuff. He's my favorite Heat player of all time.
Tony, I want to get to sort of the end of the tenure there. So you guys had accumulated, uh, you know, a pretty good roster of young players. As Ron talked about, you guys got younger, a little bit younger every year as you were trying to win and build a foundation. And Ron said that to a point, not that the firing was a relief for him because he wanted to see it through, but that he did feel a little bit burnt out by the end of it, that it's it's hard to to be in an NBA season and win 25 games or something along those lines for, you know, in the first year being 15 uh, for a three year period. But did you think at the time it was fair to Ron to for the organization to move forward after you guys had kind of built the foundation? No, I, and it's not a knock on Kevin Lockery and that staff, but I, I think one of the biggest mistakes the franchise ever made was letting Ron Rothstein go. We won 15, 18, and 24 games, and we, you could see the progress. And then we had a high draft pick. We drafted Steve Smith in that fourth year. And you could see it was moving forward. And we, you know, when, when you have a franchise uh, that's going building from the bottom up, you, you, you notice little things about how, they imp- how we improved. We started winning home games. We started competing better on the road. And we just felt that we were turning the corner. With, with, and then, and then um, Brian Shaw came to the heat with Steve Smith in that fourth year. We had a 6-6-6-8 backcourt. And, you know, they, they made the playoffs with, with Kevin, Lock- Kevin Lockery's first year. And I thought that Ron deserved the, 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 the at least one more year to take this forward because he was an outstanding coach. And I thought the best line, one of the best lines I've ever heard in 30 years in the NBA was Grant Long. When they asked Grant Long when the Heat let Ron Rothstein go, and not, he wasn't fired, he wasn't rehired because his contract was up. They asked Grant Long what he thought. He goes, you know, we lost a lot of games, but Coach Rothstein never made us feel like losers. Ron came in every day. He was the perfect guy to, to hire for the franchise at that point. Um, he, he worked hard every day. He was a fundamentalist. He really understood the game. Um, you know, later on, obviously, he became a, a very valuable assistant coach for the, the five times to the finals that the Heat made between 06 and, and 14 and won for three times. Um, you know, very valuable to Coach uh, to Riley and to Coach uh, Rothstein, uh, to Coach uh, Spolstra and, and, uh, and Stan, Stan Van Gundy. I thought that um, – I thought he should have been given at least one more year. And I believe we would have made the playoffs that year if he had coached the team and maybe he could have stayed in a a longer. So I thought they did him a disservice by letting him go. All right, let's move on to part three here. Conversation with Tony Fiorentino about all his years with the Miami heat. So, you basically, uh, uh, after that, you worked for the organization, correct? You were doing some scouting um, for the organization. Yeah, I was for- the scouting coordinator, which was really a base. I was basically the advanced scout mm-hmm. for Kevin Lockery's staff. I was an assistant coach. I sat right behind the bench, and I was um, I missed some games because I was on the road. Uh, I remember being in Milwaukee when the Heat were playing in Washington, and. Milwaukee being in the central time zone at halftime of the game, I was scouting. I went into the media room and I called Eric Spolster in the, uh, and called him and, and asked him, um, what, you know, he was, he was, uh, watching the game and taping it back in Miami and I, in the video room. And I asked him what, you know, what's going on with the game. And it just so happened that it was at the tail end of the game. Cause they started an hour earlier and he kept the phone on and near the phone, near the TV and 
That's the game where Washington scored, and then Tim Hardaway takes the ball and goes the length of the floor and scores at the buzzer. The Heat win by one, and I let out a big scream in the video room. All these people stopped short. They thought something happened. I forgot where I was, and it was just a great moment for me to share that with the team, being on the road with Hardaway making the shot, and and uh, it was a lot of fun to do that. But that's what I did. I was the video coordinator, and I was the assistant coach. I made most practices that I could. I got to work with the players, and it was really a, uh, an interesting time. I had missed Ron Rothstein being there, but uh, Louis Schiffel and Billy Cunningham kept me on as the uh, dance scout and assistant coach. So then the big announcement, um, the decision to bring Pat Riley to Miami, uh, Mickey Arison, of course, the, the celebration on the carnival. Um, Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details imagination ship. We asked Eric this question and I wanted to ask it to you sort of, did you realize at that point that everything was changing for the organization? Well, yes, you know, we were kind of floundering. We, we weren't going, you know, it, we were just there. We just existed. Um, you know, the, the, we made the playoffs the fourth and sixth year, uh, but the seventh year, no, you know, um, that was uh, it. Just wasn't working. Okay, so after seven years, something had to happen. And when Mickey took over, Mickey Harrison took over February of the All Star Game, uh, and then Lockery was let go. They hired Alvin Gentry. I went back on the bench as a as in a, you know from behind the bench to on the bench. Um, then the announcement that. Pat Riley was coming to the heat. You know, you finally, we had someone in the organization that understood what it took to win a championship. Obviously, well, what better person than, than Pat Riley? And when Eric and I were sitting on the ship together at Pat Riley's um, press conference, we looked at each other and said, man, he's really here. And then that was the early September, I believe. And then um, I met with him. For 15 minutes, I told him that, um, you know, I, I had been with the team. He knew I was there seven years. I'd been on Ronnie's staff originally. Uh, and I told him my overall goal one day was to be Eric Reed's partner on TV. So I planted that seed at the time. So I, um, he kept me on his staff for four years. And then Ron Rothstein came back. And, I, you know, I was with him for three years with the soul. And then I moved into radio and TV. But what a moment for the franchise bringing Pat Riley to the mix and, you know, and then being on his staff, Pat Riley's got, you know, been around forever in the NBA. He had some great stories. He told a story to us one time about when he was, he was a great, he was an all American in high school and all American in college, but he wasn't a real good or, or a very productive pro for some reason. And he told us about how Bill Sharman, Hall of Fame coach, brought him in, told him that uh, we'd like you to, we want, I want you to make the team, but what I really want you to do is I want I want you to work very hard in practice and work our, our, our future Hall of Fame backcourt in Jerry West and Gail Goodrich. And he says, he asked, and Pat told us that Bill Sharman asked him, well, are you willing to do that? He goes, yes, I am. So we know that Pat was a tough, hard-nosed player just the way he coached. And so 
he told a story about how when the Lakers used to be up 20, he would be the guy that the fans would be chiming in and wanted to go into the game. And then they would all get excited if he scored. Well, this one game, Gail Goodrich was out. The backup was out. Pat had a play. And don't you know, it comes down to five seconds left in the game. Laker ball down one. Charming calls timeout. He's in the huddle. He goes, okay, here's what I want you to do. Swing the ball to the top, to, to Riles, top of the key. Will, you're on the left side, left wing. You pin down on Jerry West. Riles, you hit Jerry West. He hits the shot. We go home a winner. And Jerry West, one of the greatest clutch shooters of all time in the NBA. And so they take the ball out. They throw, and he's telling us the story. They take the ball out. They throw it to him at the top of the key. And as he turns, he realizes no one's on him. So as he turns, the clock's winding down, five, four, three. He shoots the ball and misses. The crowd, oh. You know, this was their guy when they were up 20. They didn't want him in the game shooting the, 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 you know, the, the winning shot. So they go in the locker room. Pat Riley's telling us, and he sit, his locker happened to be next to Wilt Chamberlain. And Wilt said, Pat, what did you do? He goes, I was open. And, and Wilt said, then there's a freaking reason you were open. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So, and Pat, being who he was, you know, as a coach, he used that as a lesson sometimes with telling players, look, you know, they're going to try to exploit your weakness. So he turns everything he can that he could into a lesson. A lot has been said about um, the bucket incident in Detroit. In the lockout year of 98-99, uh, because the season started so late, the NBA went back to playing three in a row. They had done away with that, but three nights in a row because they had to get the games in. Mm -hmm. So we had won the first two nights. We go to Detroit. Pat was always looking for motivational things. And I remember reading a story where uh, an old coach was sitting on a rocking chair on the on the, at his house at the top of a hill. And a, and, a, a, and a football player from the high school where this guy just retired from walked up the hill and said to the coach, can I talk to you and ask you a question? The coach goes, sure. He goes, I don't understand. You know, we lost every game this year. How come we can't win? So the coach says, look, let me come down to the lake with me. And he, he walks the boy down to the lake. He says, kneel down. He knelt down. He stuck the kid's head under the water and he kept it there and he kept it there and finally at the last second he pulled it up and the kid you know takes that deep breath because now he gets fresh air and pat told the story before the game and he said to the guys now when you want to win as badly as you wanted your breath of fresh air that's when you'll win well we went out and we beat detroit that night we won three in a row it's the first time a team had done that since they did away with it, you know, they, 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 no one had, had a chance to do it because they weren't doing it anymore. So we go in the locker room, a little small locker room in Detroit, and you got you got to picture this. Here you got the coaches in their suits. Pat Riley's in his shirt. He took his jacket off. The trainers are in there. you got 12 players, Alonzo Mourning, guys like Tim Hardaway and those guys. And Tim Hardaway has his foot, his ankle, in an ice bucket with water. So Pat takes the bucket from, from Tim, and he, and he says to the guys, you guys, who wants to put their head in this bucket? He says, Zoe, you want to put your head in the bucket? Zoe goes, I'm not doing that. Tim? Tim says, no, I'm not doing that. Pat kneels down. He puts his head in the bucket. And I'm telling you, it, here you got all these guys standing around looking at each other. Here's the greatest coach in the history of, of sports. And, you know, the dapper Pat Riley. And is, he's kneeling down. And I can't, I can't tell you how long he had his head under there. We thought he, we thought he drowned. <laughs> Finally, <laughs> oh he lifts God. his head up. He pulls his, he pulls his hair back and he goes, ah, isn't winning great. And He's all, you know, when he walked out of the locker room, I think the media thought he was sweating, but it was all the water from the from his hair that he had. What a great moment! The guys got all excited, and it was really, that's Pat Riley using any motivation that that he could 
to get his team to, to play well and play hard. And, um, you know, the same thing happened when we played uh, the the, uh, the Bulls when they came into town in their heyday. And we had eight guys. Pat Riley had just made the, the trade to get Tim Hardaway. And uh, it was February. And they hadn't, the guys hadn't gotten there yet. And we had a point guard who had to travel from Los Angeles to Miami, traveled all day, had no idea what we were doing with our offense or anything. And we're in the locker room and Pat said, why are we playing this game? He said to the guys, obviously I can't tell the story as well as he did, but why are we playing this game? He goes, everybody out there thinks that the conclusion's done already. Why are we even going, why don't I just go out there and tell them we forfeit? So he, what he was doing was he was getting his players upset, getting them uh, really mad at him, saying, you know, look, he says, look, you guys are professionals too, okay? Why don't we go out there and let's, let, you know, and they use a few curse words. Let's, let's just do what we got. That's the night that uh, Rex Chapman had 38, 39th in the left corner. Use the curse words, coach. Use the, cur- the use the curse words, coach. This is a podcast. No, I can't do that. But, <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it was pretty cool. You know, so he motivates his team. He finds, and we won that game with eight guys with, 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 with the Bulls in their heyday, winning 60-something games. Uh, one more Pat Riley story I think people will enjoy. And obviously I can't tell it as well as he does, but one time we're in the locker room, in the old locker room, the old, old arena, and the guys are ready to put their hands in, and he tells a little story. He goes, you know, back in ancient times, there was two civilizations living close by, and the one civilization kept attacking the other until the one civilization that was getting attacked, they got upset about it. And they, you know, obviously they were upset. And they said, look, we got to put an end to this. So what they did was they took their boat, they got in their boats and they went across the river to the other civilization, the one that was always attacking them. And when they got on the other side, the, the captain of this whole thing said to them, okay, burn the boats. And their men said, look, if we burn the boats, we got no means of escape. And Pat said, and, 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 and the captain said, that's right. We're either going to win or we're going to die. So they burned the boats. The guys got all excited with the story. They ran out. We won the game. But when they ran out, all the coaches are standing around and said, Coach, what happened with the story? And Pat said, don't tell them, but they all died. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, he used man. the motivation of most of the story, and the guys went out and won the game. Uh, but it was, it was interesting, though, because you know, those, those are the bromides that he used. He just used a lot of real-life situations to get the guys interested in – Taking their 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 game to another level, and uh, he was the best at that. That's uh, that's really brilliant stuff, Tony. Thanks for that. Um, in terms of when he takes over, though, uh, I, I'd imagine so. You you kind of outlined your plan and what you wanted to do, but he keeps you on staff. Uh, given the fact that generally in in kind of the modern era, when a new coach comes in or a new regime comes in, it's wholesale changes. They all bring in their own people. Uh, what was the process for you to stay on board, and, and how did you end up convincing him to keep you? Well, I just had that meeting with him, and I don't know if he spoke to Ron Rothstein about it. Um, he told, I think what came out later a little bit was that he wanted someone on the staff that was familiar with Miami and could give him, like, the other, one of the things that he did, and maybe this is why he did this, he asked me three questions. He said to me, um, he asked about Bill Ferran, the strength and conditioning coach. He said, how is he? And I said, Coach, you're going to like him because he doesn't browbeat the, the uh, players, but he gets the job done. They respect him. And then that worked out well. And then the second question he asked me about Andy Ellisberg. 
And I basically said, Coach, with all due respect, Andy's going to be the smartest guy in the room. He really knows his stuff. He started out here as an intern. He's great at what he does. I think you're going to really find out. You know, I'm not telling you anything you're not going to know. Something like that. And then the third question, which was very interesting, he said to me, is our video coordinator a computer guy learning basketball, or is he a basketball guy learning computers? I said, no, Coach, he's a, he's a basketball man learning computers. He's talking about Eric Spol. I was talking about Eric Spolstra. And so for the first couple of years, I don't think he really knew Eric's name because it's the assistant coaches that deal with the video guy. You go scout a game, and then you come back, and Eric would um, put something else in the scouting report that he saw because he, he looked at another tape of a game we hadn't watched. And so it, it just enhanced the report, and you knew he was really sharp. He knew his stuff, and he was very good at uh, – he was in the practices teaching fundamentals and all that. So that that's how that developed. So uh, basically it was he wanted someone familiar with Miami, familiar with, with the situation, and give him some heads up about certain things. And uh, I think that's part of the reason why he kept me on his staff, and it worked out very well for me, obviously, and hopefully for him. Tony, I started covering the team in 1996, so it was right in the middle of that Heat Knicks fervor. Yeah. And and there will never, in my view, there will never be four straight postseasons like that. Um, four yeah, series, that yeah, four series, all of them going the distance um, to to the very last game. Obviously, the 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 brawls, um, Jeff Van Gundy being dragged across the floor, uh, P.J. Brown, Charlie Ward, Anthony Carter shot that goes over the backboard at MSG, uh, all of the subplots, Mashburn passing up the shot. I mean, Heat fans from that era know all of those plays by heart. So is there one story from the Knicks Heat days that you don't think is told enough? Is there, is there one you can tell us that maybe we don't know already? Well, two stories come to mind. Um, when we lost game four in the garden the first year, we're down 3-1. The first time we played them, 96-97. We're down 3-1. We come home. We have practice at LaSalle. And we have a little meeting before we go down. Coach says to us, look, don't say anything to the players today. I want them to work this out. They have to run the quit out of themselves because the guys were making comments after the game, uh, uh, game four, that was defeatist. And that Pat would have nothing about that. He was always about being positive, always about being tough. You still had a chance to win the series. So we went down. Now, here it is, um, you know, uh, April, late April, early May. We're in the fifth game whatever it was, the date, and, you know, you played 82 games, and we had a tough, we had a two-hour practice that was like training camp. They ran, they ran, and they ran, and we didn't say a word to them in the whole practice. Normally, you say, oh, good shot, let's go, you know, you, you're talking it up, you pull a guy aside. We didn't, our staff didn't say a word to them the whole game, the whole practice. It was Pat that said a few things. He did the coaching. We didn't say a word. And, and, and then that, that next game, the game five, is when we had the game in hand and Charlie Ward went at uh, PJ's knees and he flipped them. And now we're flying to New York for game six. And we're on the plane. We're, we, we're landing. Pat Riley's, you know, he's got to figure, he's got to find out from the league, from Rod Thorne, what they're going to do with fines. Because that was the game where the, the, the players left the bench from the Knicks. Obviously, P.J. Brown and Ward are going to have a problem maybe getting suspended. So when we landed, as the players were getting off the plane, 
Pat's on the phone with Rod Dawn, and Rod Dawn tells him that uh, the situation, that P.J. Brown's going to be suspended the last two games of the series if there is a game seven, and that, you know, I told him about the players at the Knicks where they're going to suspend some of them for game six, some of them for game seven for leaving the bench. Pat said to, Pat, to, to, uh, to, to Rod Dawn, he says, well, look, Rod, if you haven't announced this yet to the press, why don't you not suspend anybody? Don't suspend anybody. He was pleading with Rod Thorne. P.J. Brown in that series was arguably our best player for five games. He was really good. He had his best series, I think, in his career in those five games. And we didn't want to lose him because he was such a glue for us, you know, coming back, winning game six and seven. But obviously that, that Rod Thorne did what he had to do. He had to suspend people. And then Pat Riley to ask the guys, you know, in the locker room, who's going to be the P.J. Brown tonight? Who's going to be the guy to pick us up? And and um, and that was when Ike Austin in in the, in, in the game in late in the middle fourth quarter when they were on a, they had momentum they were up and there was a breakaway layup and Ike Austin came out of nowhere and blocked it and then we we got the momentum back won the game and then won game seven at home and that's the only series that we beat the Knicks in those four because the next three series they won but those are some of the the the, the behind the scene things that went on and it, again it was it was Pat and his leadership that helped bring that team back from their defeatist attitude making them think that they could win the series and then they did we'll continue on with Tony Fiorentino in just a moment but first a word from another of the podcasts and the five reasons sports network Hello, this is Chris Joseph, co-host of The Bulls Cast. Some of you might have heard our earlier promos on this podcast and wondered, what in the holy shit f- is Bulls Cast thing all about? Well, Bulls Cast is a comedy podcast about Miami sports, culture, and politics, and sex, and food. You know, all the shit that matters to those of us who call the 305 home. We also throw in parody songs and comedy sketches and invite the occasional cool-ass guests. And my co-host Slim and I do all of this while completely baked out of our gourds. So if you love Miami sports, but you're also into laughing and living your fullest life in this beautiful city we call our home, then please download BallsCast wherever you consume your podcasts. Then sit back, relax, and enjoy the crazy. The next part of this uh, with Tony Fiorentino, I want to transition to your broadcasting career. You mentioned something interesting earlier that in the very early stage with Pat Riley, you were talking about how your goal was not to, say, eventually become his lead assistant or to get a head coaching job somewhere else, but your goal was to be sitting there next to Eric Reed broadcasting the team. Why did it appeal to you so much, and how did you go about developing the style that, that Heat fans would get accustomed to over those next 15 years? Well, when I was a high school coach at Mount Vernon, we, we were playing in the uh, county center in, in championship games. There's a guy named Ron Seisler who bought the, uh, the, the cable rights. And at that time, it was a lot different 30-something years ago. And he asked me if I wanted to do the color on the games that when my team wasn't playing. And when I was doing it, I said, you know, I like this. This is, this is a lot of fun. I thought I could be pretty good at it. You could be a coach on the air. So when I came to Miami in that third year, with Ronnie, you know, there were whispers that maybe they wouldn't bring Ronnie back. There was whispers that Eric would become the play-by-play announcer and Sam Smith would be out, who was the original play-by-play announcer. So I said, I asked Eric to go ask um, 
Louis Chaffel, is there a chance for me to become the color analyst? He said yes, but then they decided Dave Roll would do it and keep me as the advanced scout, as the you know the uh, the, the scouting coordinator. So when Pat Riley came, I didn't want I, I, I don't want to be one of these guys in the NBA that bounces from from city to city. There are guys that have been in the league ten years; they've been on five different teams, and so um, I, my goal was to do the color with Eric Reed because he, he and I were good friends. You know, we came to Miami together um, and he's very good at what he did. I used to listen to tapes when I was, when I was scouting, I used to watch tapes to, to, to get a good uh, comprehensive scouting report. I listened to Eric. I did it with the sound up. And to me, he was the best play by play guy. I heard of all the tapes that I listened to. There were, there were guys that I thought weren't as good as Eric. So I wanted to work with him, not only being his friend, but knowing how good he was. And so, um, uh, my, after my, after my uh, two years with Pat, my, my contract's up, and I got offered a job. I got offered a first assistant job in Vancouver with Brian Hill. The coach used to be the coach of Orlando. Then he got the job with the Vancouver Grizzlies. Now, I didn't know what Pat wanted to do after my first, after two years on the staff. So I, I asked for permission to, to speak with Brian. He, they offered me a two-year deal as the first assistant with the Vancouver Grizzlies. And so I talked with Randy Fund, the general manager. Of them. I said, look, Randy, I, I want to stay in Miami. I want to work for Pat Riley. I want to work for the Heat. But I, I don't know what Pat Riley's got in mind. So about an hour later on a Sunday night, Pat Riley called me, asked me about the deal. He said, that's a pretty good deal, you know, with the money and the, and the position. Um, he said, what I'll promise you is that you'll either, be, uh, you'll either be an assistant coach, you'll either scout for us, or you'll be on TV. You're a TV or radio. And I said, well, coach, I appreciate that. I said, but I'll trust you, and I'll call up Brian Hill and tell him I'm not going to take the job. That was the only time that I really thought – about leaving Miami because I wasn't sure about my position after the two years that I, the two year contract that I had. And then right after that, Pat Riley gave me a three year contract. And then, you know, we talked about what we did earlier, did earlier. And so that's how the whole thing evolved. And then, um, Ron Rothstein, uh, Randy fund was in, was in the, the, the offices one day at LaSalle and the heat were looking for a coach for the women's team, a coach and general manager. And I said to Randy Fun, I said, I got the guy for you. I said, I, it's Ron Rothstein. They had just been let go in Cleveland with uh, my, uh, Mike Fratello's staff. He was available. And it looked like, to me, it looked like for Randy, a light bulb went on over his head like you see in the comics. And so Ron gets hired as the general manager and head coach of the soul. And then... I knew at that time that Jack Ramsey was probably going to do another year or two, and I wanted to be the color analyst on TV, but Ron wanted me to be his first assistant, and I couldn't resist. I couldn't do you know, Ron, I had to be loyal to Ron. He gave me my, my start, start, and he was a, a good, close friend, one of my closest friends. He was the best man at my wedding when I got married a year after I was here in Miami. And so I... I went with him as the first assistant with the soul. And then three years later, when the soul was no longer existing. Now I went to radio for a year with Mike Inglis. And then I moved to TV when Mike Fratillo went to Memphis as the head coach, when Ubi Brown stepped down and that's how the whole thing evolved. And, uh, and you mentioned, you asked me about my style. Well, I, one of the things I had to do is I had to be myself. 
And it, you, at first, you, you know, you, you got to find your, your way. You got to find your niche. I always just try to be honest on the air. Try to point out little things that you know look uh, for the fans. Point out things that you see as a coach. And I couldn't believe in the early years the one thing that we got the most response from. And it really was more a little later, maybe in the middle of the years, when 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 we when Eric and I went on social media with our Twitter account, when when I explained the jump ball about how you know fans don't real don't realize that there's a technique to a jump ball, or they didn't at the time, and that you know you, you look for the little seams where a guy has to seal his man away from a, 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 an area, and the other your teammate does the same thing, and you create a little gap to tap the ball there, and I used to I used to illustrate it. We got more responses on that, that you started to realize that there isn't anything so small or so minute that you could give them or so basic that they don't want to see. And that's why I learned a lot from that one situation on the tap ball. So I started, I tried to look at the game through the eyes of a fan, but give them the game through the eyes of a coach. And the one guy I tried to emulate, to be honest with you, is Bill Raftery. You know, Bill Raftery, when you, watch, when you listen to him do a game, it sounds like you're sitting at a bar having a beer, watching a game. And so I just tried to do it that way and just have a casual approach, give the, the little technical stuff that goes on, try to have the fans understand there's always a reason why a coach makes a decision. And it was my job to figure out the decision, why that decision was made, what the reason was. And you're able to do that. And then the fans can understand more why a coach did what he did. So that's how the whole thing evolved. Tony, the, the thing that strikes me, too, is I want to take you to what ended up being the, the final season here and the outpouring of emotion from from Heat fans on Twitter. I'm sure you felt a lot of that in the arena, that a lot of the stuff that you did over those 15 years resonated with them, whether it was a catchphrase like, yeah, baby, or or some of the things that you would try to point out during the game. Do you have a couple of stories maybe that, that touched you from this kind of farewell season that you had in the booth, that, things that maybe people don't know about? about well i think because of social media and because of the league pass and and also because we were in the championship years where we got we gathered more fans noticing and following the heat that when we went to uh, on the road many fans came up to me last year on the road and were aware that this was my last year and they were very, very nice. Gave me compliments. They, they, they appreciate. They told me they appreciated what I did. They said they were going to miss me, and it was very nice for them to do that. I really appreciate that. And then I had some colleagues in the league, you know, like like Mike Breen and people of that nature. Some of the best guys, Ian Eagle, some of the best announcers, broadcasters in in basketball, saying they really when they when they put on the game and listened to the Heat through the league pass, they really enjoyed listening to Eric and me. They liked the chemistry between the two of us we kind of had our own little niche i knew for example that i never had to worry about um trades or things of that nature because i knew eric had all of that eric's one of the best if not the best in the nba with nuggets he does so much homework that you know he doesn't even use a lot of what he has and and then my for example and eric knew that i i knew the rules so most of the rules and i tried to keep up on him and if i didn't i'd ask the official in the next game if i had a confusion about one so we knew what the other guy was what his strengths were and you kind of know when what guy finishes a phrase or when a guy when a guy wants to start a phrase that that sort of thing. So the chemistry that evolved between us, you know, we obviously we were homers 
but we were honest about the opposing team. Fans, we got nice compliments from fans saying that they thought we were the most honest announcers, one of the most honest announcing duos that they um, heard in the NBA. We were honest when, it, when our own guys, you know, Dwayne Wade has a charge. It's a charge. It's not, it's not going to be, we're not going to say it's not a charge because it's Dwayne Wade, for example. Uh, we got a lot of compliments from the officials. I know that there was one call in one of the games um, a few years back when Mario Chalmers was on the team, a crucial call in one of the games on the left side of the floor in front of the heat bench. And we obviously were on the other side and it looked like Chalmers got fouled and they, they called an offensive foul. And I said, Oh, I don't know about that. Something like that. And then when we showed the replay from the baseline, we saw that Chalmers extended his arm and it was an offensive foul. So I corrected myself. I said, no, we were wrong. Great call by the official. The following, year about the fourth or fifth game of the season the official had a game at, at, at American Airlines Arena and he came up to me and said well, I, I appreciate what you and Eric did on that call because some announcers don't do that you guys were honest you corrected yourself and as officials we really appreciate the fact that you tried to be upstanding with that and so I, I think things of that nature uh, opposing coaches also appreciate the fact that Eric and I were at every press conference before each game with both coaches not every uh, announcing duo does that they usually go to their own, but I learned that from Eric. I learned a lot from Eric on answer, asking questions, get, getting um, sidebar information, uh, and some of the coaches that I knew as a coach, they would pull us aside and tell us certain things that they they trusted that we would use our discretion on what to use, what not to use. So Eric and I really appreciated those relationships that we had with those coaches. And to be honest, that's really what I'm going to meet. I'm going to I'm going to miss. I'm going to miss my my relationships with uh, players, people around the league even players coming up to us at times because I, you know, I won't be traveling out of Miami anymore. I'll be doing a lot of community stuff and uh, I'm really going to miss it. Uh, to be honest, I wish I was doing it two or three more years, but it is what it is and we have some important things to do in the community uh, raising the Heat's profile there and doing things that, um, that, are, that are not just basketball related but life related and that, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I want to close with that, Tony. Um, can you tell people about what you've got going on with the camps this summer? We have eight weeks of heat camp, and um, it's four different locations. You could go on uh, uh, MiamiHeatCamp.com, um, and we have one at the arena. We've got two venues in, in Broward and one at Miami-Dade College. We teach more than basketball. We teach life skills. Um, parents like the fact when they come, there's discipline in the camp, and we just try to give them a, a wholesome type uh, approach, not just basketball. And it's easy for me to, to, to look at the Heat team and use them as examples and use Coach Spolster's approach, um, you know, that sort of thing, and, 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 and the, uh, you know, the culture that the Heat have, all of those sort of things. And and um, the one, the one last thing I want to tell you is one, one funny thing is people have asked me if I could write a book because a lot of funny things have happened with me as a high school coach, as a, uh, a college coach, NBA guy. Over, well, the one thing I'm going to tell you what the title of my book is going to be, but it's got a little story. Ray Williams, the late Ray Williams, Gus's brother, played in the NBA ten years and uh, uh, for the Knicks and for the Nets, and. Ray was at Mount Vernon High School taking a test, a health test, a health quiz, and he had 10 fill-ins. 
The next day, the teacher calls him up to the front of the room and says, Ray, you cheated on the test. Ray says, how do you know I cheated? This is a true story because I'm not smart enough to make this up. This is going to be the title of my book. Ray comes up to the front of the room and the teacher points out the first nine answers are the same as the basketball player sitting next to him. And he says to him, well, how do you know you didn't cheat off me? Ray says to the teacher. The teacher points to number 10 and the other guy had, I don't know. And Ray had number 10, I don't know either. <laughs> True story. That's the title of my book. That's if I write fantastic. a book, I don't know either. And somewhere in the book, you're going to get the story. <laughs> uh, that's great. That's great. That's great. All right, we will buy that book. Uh, I don't know who you're going to find to write it, but I'm available these days if you need someone, Tony. So maybe we can sit down. Thank you for doing this. We really appreciate it. I know people will enjoy it. Um, again, definitely check out, as you did, uh, the Ron Rothstein episode in our library, or the two we did with Eric Reed, the one with Jax. We've got a couple more of these planned. I'm trying to get UD to sit down with us for one of these, which uh, oh, which, be a good be, one. Yep. which will be a lot of fun. And I, I think we're actually going to talk to Brian Grant next about uh, – about that 2003-2004 season and, and some of the things he's gone through in his life. But, Tony, thanks for the time. Obviously, we will see you around, and everybody go sign up uh, for that camp for the kids. Um, definitely check out what Tony's doing. Thanks, Tony. You got it, guys, anytime. Ciao. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.